you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them uh, to John chapter 4, or if you find your way on your phone or your iPad, we're going to be in John chapter 4 this morning. Uh, we're, we're taking a break from resurgence through the month of December, but we'll re-engage the book of Acts in, in January. But we're taking time this month to focus in, obviously, on Christmas and a series that's called God Unwrapped. And so what we're doing uh, for a few weeks is just walking through some different encounters that Jesus had with people, especially, particularly in the Gospel of John, that demonstrate for you and I what Christmas is all about, even though they're not Christmas passages, because it has to do with Jesus came into the world. Obviously, Christmas is the celebration of his birth. But what he did in coming to the world is he revealed who God is to us. He put human flesh onto God and demonstrated this is what God looks like, talks like, thinks like, acts like. And so he brings definition for our understanding of who God is. And so what's important for us is there are things that sometimes we miss or we forget that we need to re-engage about who God is that Jesus unfolds or unwraps for us. And so last week, if you're here, we, we talked about this encounter that Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus. And when they came together, Nicodemus had this very religious mindset. And when he engaged Jesus, Jesus had a whole different world for him to be introduced to. And so we talked a little bit about that. And then this morning, we're going to talk about another encounter that Jesus had with, with a woman. We call her, we, we give her the name, the woman at the well. She probably had actually a real name, but that's how we refer to her. And in this encounter, what, what's demonstrated is the profound love of God for people. And that today we're, we're unwrapping the God of love that's demonstrated in who Jesus is. And for some of you, it's like, oh, okay, I got that one. I know that God loves me. And I know that's kind of the cliche. Everybody says God loves you. And you're like, that's nice. But I, I think that we, most of us, don't understand the depth of God's love. Because if we truly did, it would change the way we live our lives. It would change the way we view ourselves. It would change the way we understand God. And so this morning, I, I want us to, to take some time to walk through this, this story together to really dig deeper into some, some of the things that God is willing to overcome uh, and to, to get through to reach us, to demonstrate his love. You know, if, if you've obviously watched the, any news over the last couple of weeks, you've seen all of the, the coverage of the, the passing and the memorials of uh, George H.W. Bush. And, and so if, in watching a number of those different interviews, I, I was watching one particular interview with George W., his son, and, and how he was kind of telling about how his dad responded to different things in his life. And uh, the reporter asked him a pretty basic question, but his, his answer was very interesting. She said, what did your dad say to you when you were elected president? Now, I was just filling in the blanks thinking, well, of course he's going to say, I'm proud of you, son. Good job, you know. But he didn't say that. He said, my dad said to me, I love you. I thought, wow, that's, that's different. And, and, he, and this is what George W. said. He said, those are, those are words that everybody needs to hear in their life. And it's so true that, that not just that I love you, but the fact that God really does love you. Even though you struggle with understanding that, or you struggle about even applying that to other people, that God actually loves us. And there's all kinds of stories throughout the scripture to demonstrate that. But this morning, we're going to dial into this one particular passage in uh, John chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to start and just going to read the first nine verses of John 4. And then we'll, we'll actually jump into also some verses towards the end of the passage. Because it's pretty lengthy and Jesus' encounter has a lot of details to it. But So starting in verse 1, John chapter 4, it says, Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. 
Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And so Jesus goes on, and we won't read through all of it, but what Jesus now does is he begins to engage her in this dialogue where he, he, he has insight about her life and what she's walked through that he begins to unfold for her to open her eyes and begins to clarify who God really is to the point where she now turns her life over to Jesus. And then the response or the outcome, look at verses 39 through 42. It says, Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. What did all these people, including this woman, have that maybe we miss? They had an encounter with God and understood that God loves people profoundly. That's what changed things, and there's a lot going on. In fact, what we're going to look at this morning is as, just as important as what Jesus said is what Jesus did in this passage, which speaks volumes that I want us to look at this morning. So when we look at this, this passage, there are five things that jump out of what Jesus was willing to get overcome or go beyond to demonstrate, not to just to this woman, for all, but to all humanity, God loves people. And I want you to hear, because maybe not all of these hit you, but maybe some of them hit you in barriers that you have in your life in, in terms of experiencing God's love. The first one is this in verse 4. Jesus' love goes beyond social barriers. So in verse 4 it says, and he had to go or pass through Samaria. So it's interesting. So we, when we read geography in the Bible, usually we don't go look on a map and see what's going on. But when it says Jesus had to go through Samaria, for a Jew to go through Samaria, you never did that because Jews and Samaritans didn't relate to, uh, to each other because Jews saw themselves as a higher social status, higher religious status, everything about them. And Samaritans were almost like half-breeds, half-breeds, not fully Jewish, not really Jewish in their religion, not even Jewish in culture. And so a good Jew, even though going from Galilee to Jerusalem, a straight line takes you right through Samaria, would never, ever take a straight path. To Jerusalem. They would always go around intentionally. They would actually double, nearly double the amount of distance they would travel to make sure they didn't set foot in Samaria. Why? Because I didn't want to associate with those people, with those people who are the lower end, the lower class. They don't, they're not up to my level. And so can you imagine adjusting your schedule to double your travel time just to avoid a certain group of people? Because you've perceived yourself to be better than them. Why is that important? Because Jesus makes a beeline right through Samaria to make a huge statement. Jesus doesn't love certain people and hate others. He loves everybody. And this is a powerful statement. Jews didn't do what he was doing, and I can guarantee that on the road in there, that I'm sure some of his disciples said, uh, Jesus, don't you know this is not the way that we go from Galilee to Jerusalem? There's another way. And Jesus says, no, this is the way that I'm going. Why? Because Jesus knew when he got through into Samaria, he would engage with people who were considered to be a different social status than him, lower than him. But he engaged them. Why is that significant when, when it comes to God's love? Regardless of how you view yourself, we all have a certain group of people that we wish we were like or we were a part of and feel like we don't get all the benefits that they get. 
and they maybe have more money or more education or they live in a nicer neighborhood or they have friends that you wish that you had. And so there's different circles. And so we always look and think, man, if I were them, if I were in that circle, then I would really feel like God loved me or God cared for me or God reached out for me. God's trying to erase that. God doesn't come for a certain social status and then somehow marginalize or leave others behind. He loves all people. And so for the Jews, especially his disciples, to see Jesus making a statement that, listen, we're Jewish doesn't, doesn't mean that we're better than anybody else. We're all equal before the Lord. And so there's this social thing that's going on that Jesus is, is demonstrating for his disciples. Second thing, look at verse 6 and 7. Jesus loves you beyond moral barriers. So verse 6 uh, says it was about the sixth hour. And it says a woman from Samaria came to draw water. So this is a woman, not women. This is a single woman by herself. What's significant about this? Again, there's a lot going on in this passage. So the sixth hour was noon, the middle of the day. And nobody ever went to the well at noon because that's the height of the heat of the day. So you went in the morning and you went in the evening, but you never went in the middle of the day. So this woman had intentionally chosen to go at the sixth hour. Why? Because if you read through the rest of the story, Jesus kind of unpacks her life, and she is an immoral woman. Jesus actually tells her without her giving up any information, she said, he says, you've been married five times, and the guy you're with right now is not your husband either. And so you, you have a challenge. And so Jesus is engaging a woman who's trying to avoid other people. Why? Because if she showed up in the morning or the evening, can you imagine the whispers and the looks and the rejection she would feel from all the other women at the well because they knew her reputation. But Jesus shows up. In fact, she was shocked to see Jesus there because nobody's supposed to be at the well at noon. But Jesus at the well on purpose. Why? Because this woman has experienced from her own second-class culture of Sumerians this disdain for her moral choices in life. She's been marginalized. She's been pushed away. But Jesus shows up, and this is a powerful statement. that Jesus, Jesus knows she's an immoral woman. Jesus knows that she's been impure sexually. But where does he show up? Right where she doesn't expect to see him, right in the middle of what she's going through, right in her chosen isolation because she doesn't want the looks that people are going to give her. What does that say about the way God treats people who are broken, sinful, and impure? He shows up right in the middle of your sin. Why is that significant? Because Jesus shows up in her sin and doesn't justify or somehow make it okay, especially when it comes to immorality, especially when it comes to sexual purity. Jesus has an, a plan and a purpose for our sexuality and the way it's expressed. But he also knows in the fallenness of our humanity that one of the things that brings shame to our lives more than any other issue is our sexuality. And so for this woman to experience the depth of shame that she has, Jesus shows up right in the middle of her shame. She was in her shame zone. You have one of those where you put a barrier around yourself, don't let people get close enough. Why? Because you'll feel ashamed of the choices that you've made in your life then you'll be stuck in the choices that you've made in your life. Jesus invades her shame to demonstrate that God loves her even in her brokenness, even in the midst of her bad choices, even in the midst of her impurity. Jesus is present with her when nobody else would be with her. What does that say? God loves people who are broken. God loves people who are failed. God loves people who make bad decisions. And for you today, maybe you have felt that sting. Maybe in your own mind or what people have said to you in your own immoral decisions in your life you now although you don't physically wear it you know emotionally you do you wear the scarlet letter everywhere you go you feel the sting of your decisions in life and because that you felt rejected by people and then you've applied that to God this story demonstrates that God shows up in the midst of our brokenness and our sin why because God loves you more than your sin God loves you more than your broken decisions in life God wants to show up where you're at 
which leads to the third thing. Look at as well the rest of verse 7 or in verse 7. This is, this is an interesting one. Jesus loves you beyond gender barriers. Now, for most of the men in the room, you're like, what does that even mean? For the women, I'll go, yep. It says in verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, we're like, well, that's just part of the story. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus is showing up and doing something as a Jewish man you're never supposed to do. He's talking to a woman in public. The only woman you talked to in public, if you were a Jew, was your wife. You didn't go, especially, you didn't show up where there's a woman by herself at a well and start to engage her in conversation. You just didn't do that. That, that breaks with their customs and their tradition. In fact, for some people, that would be that somehow Jesus was propositioning her, which is not what Jesus was doing. But that's the kind of thing Jesus is risking, to show up and talk to a woman, especially in that culture, because in that culture, clearly, if you read through the New Testament, you can see it. And if you know history, women were second-class citizens. They were not allowed to do the things that men were allowed to do. They, they were somehow marginalized to certain responsibilities and certain duties, which is not consistent with who God says men and women are to be. But Jesus was trying to push in on that. He was engaging with a woman. And especially, this applies specifically to the church and our culture today. Now, we're, we're going through a season in, in, in our culture today where women have been victimized, women have been violated, women have been, have been taught, treated unfairly, and, and, and been, horrible things have been done to women. And what are we doing about it as the church? When one more event comes up of a woman who was sexually assaulted at the hand of a man in the industry or wherever it might be, what is going on? But you know what's sad? Even though we don't hear all of that in the church, there's the same kind of mentality that happens in the church. I've seen it. I have seen women treated as second-class citizens in the church. That is not consistent with Scripture. That is not consistent with the heart of God. In fact, listen to a couple passages of Scripture that remind us of this. Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. In Christ's family, there can be no division into Jew and non-Jew, slave and free, male and female. Among us, you are all equal. That is, we are all in a common relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, back at the beginning. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It should be a little louder in this room. This is, I know, in the church, this is where I'm just, when we get back into the book of Acts, we're going to get to a passage that deals with how women, women in ministry and women, women in leadership is something that actually can and should happen in the church. Now, I know that there's a, a wide variety of opinions and interpretations of certain passages of Scripture, but you have to understand the Bible is written in a culture where women were second-class citizens. And one of the things that Jesus did, and here's the interesting thing, if, if, you're, if you've come a background which says, hey, women are not allowed to teach, they are not allowed to do these things, they're only allowed to do these things, then read the New Testament starting with the Gospels and read how Jesus treated women. Then read Paul's prohibitions in the later parts of the New Testament, but only read those through the lens of how Jesus treated women. For a quick example, and, I'm, and I know, and I'll move on. Women are not allowed to teach. Why were women not allowed to teach in the New Testament? I'll tell you why. Because they were second-class citizens, and women were not allowed to be educated. That's why they weren't allowed to teach. It wasn't because they weren't capable. It's because they weren't allowed an uneducated woman to get up in a synagogue or get up in a church context and teach if they didn't know what they were talking about. And those happened to be women. I'll tell you, there are wonderful teachers that are far better than me that are women. Okay, that is lame. That's it. The reason I say that is not to be controversial, not to be offensive to anybody, but I want you to understand, 
Why in the world would Jesus call his bride, the church, to his mission in the world, which is to make disciples of all nations and then suddenly sideline half of the workforce? It makes absolutely no sense. Why would God create people in his image, creating them male and female, not male and female? This is so important. That's what is happening here is Jesus is violating Jewish tradition to prove a point to people that God loves women as much as he loves men. And the church should be the same way. I feel passionate about that, and I know that there's debate, but please read the Gospels before you read Paul to understand what Jesus feels about women and their value. Moving on. <clears throat> Doesn't get any easier from here. Going on in verse 7 again. Jesus loves you beyond religious barriers. There's a lot packed in this. So it says, obviously, verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to drink water. So Samaritans were not only a lower class. They were not only uh, um, different in terms of their ethnicity, which we'll talk about, but they were different in their approach to religion. They had somewhat kind of co-opted or borrowed the Jewish faith, but because of that, they weren't really fully Jewish. They really didn't understand fully what it meant to be Jewish. And so they were almost like their own offshoot of Judaism, their own religion. And Jesus yet, even though a woman who has a different understanding of God, Jesus doesn't be exclusive with her and step back, but he engages her, in fact, and engages her to help her to understand more clearly who God is. Why is that important? Because we divide over religion all the time. In fact, most of us, when we find out somebody is of a different faith, we don't know how to have a conversation with them. We either know how to shut down or debate, but we don't know how to talk to them. Because we, we were at a distance. If someone introduces themselves and they're Muslim, you and I don't know what to do. Because for some of us, Muslim means terrorist, and that's not true. For some in the world, yes, that has been true. But before you and I become so engulfed in our own kind of looking down on people, remember the things called the Crusades? Where people's lives were taken if they didn't convert? See, we all have those issues, but Jesus never pushed back on somebody because they were of a different belief system. And this is important for you and I to understand because we live in a world where we're surrounded by people with a d different belief system. But what if we were able to engage people? What if we were able to be present pe with people instead of creating insiders and outsiders? God is the one who says who's inside and outside. We are not. So that means when we engage people, we don't think, well, I'm an insider and you're an outsider. No, 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 no. We're all, in a sense, outsiders until God makes us an insider. So when we engage people, why do we separate? Because what happens? This is why the church sometimes is accused of being a club, where you're in or you're out. You got the secret handshake and the right belief system, you're in. But if you don't have that, then, then you're really, you're not, you're not welcome. That's not the way Jesus is approaching this. He's engaging this woman. I think all of us at one time or another in our life have felt that what it like, feels like to be the outsider, where you're not on the inside. You're not in, in with the people that are, you want to be in with, and so you kind of try to figure out, how do I get in? Anybody relate to that? That's what somebody feels like who has yet to really come to know Jesus when you encounter them. There's this inside and outside. I had a, a friend that I met in high school that was just, he was a savior to me in, in a season of my life because I went to, uh, I went through ninth grade, I was in public school, and then my parents put me in private school, a Christian school in 10th grade, and it was kind of like I ended up in no man's land because when the school I got to, a lot of the students had gone to school since sixth grade, some of them since they were in kindergarten, and they all knew each other. And then I couldn't even come in as a freshman. I came in as a sophomore, so I missed all the new incoming freshmen. So I showed up, and I think there were two new students that year that came in in the 10th grade. And we kind of connected, but it was that awkward thing. It's like I default to you because you're the only person who doesn't know anybody else. But I remember the first week, 
Anybody experience this, eating lunch by yourself? Ah, it's tough. You try to pretend like you're not awkward, but you're super awkward. And I, that went on for a couple days, and I'm like, this stinks. This is not, I want to go back to public school. I know all my friends there. And then this guy named Andre comes out of his circle of friends, comes over to me and, and introduces himself and says, hey, why don't you come hang out with us? He introduced me to his friend Jeff and a couple of their friends, and we started hanging out. And this guy became one of my best friends my, my 10th grade year because he looked at me, and he knew because he had been at that school since he was in 6th grade, and he could see all the little cliques that had formed and all the little social gatherings, and you could see it on the quad, all the cool people hanging out in certain areas and all the jocks and all the geeks and everybody. And I don't know what he was, but he invited me, and I'm like, okay, take any group as long as it's a group. And he welcomed me in, and I remember going home that day, and my parents kept asking, did you meet anybody? I said, yeah, there's this guy named Andre who came over to me, and I got to know him. And they were like, whew. <laughs> but I'll never forget what it felt like to be on the outside, but I remember what it felt like when he welcomed to the inside. You're on the outside looking in, so are other people. But listen to what the Bible says about what God does for those who are on the outside. Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 13, in a paraphrase called The Message, says this. It was only yesterday that you outsiders to God's way had no idea of any of this. Didn't know the first thing about the way God works, hadn't the faintest idea of Christ. You knew nothing of that rich history of God's covenants and promises in Israel, hadn't a clue about what God was doing in the world at large. Now because of Christ dying that death, shedding that blood, you who were once out of it altogether are in on everything. That's good news. Jesus took outsiders and makes them insiders. And then the fourth, the fifth barrier that Jesus overcomes to reach us to demonstrate his love is he overcomes and goes beyond racial barriers. Verse 9, Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? So we got religion going on, we got gender, we have uh, we have social status, all this stuff going on, and then the Jews looked at the Samaritans as not Jewish by birth or by religion. And so they were considered a whole nother people group, a whole nother ethnicity. And she says to Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, are asking me, a person of different ethnicity, a different group of people, for a drink? Why is she saying that? Because Jews, religiously, socially, and racially, did not mix with other cultures. They were exclusive. So what was Jesus doing? Jesus shows up to a well without anything to draw water. What do you think he's doing? It's on purpose. Because she has to draw water from, for him, and what she draws water with, Jesus has to drink from, which automatically makes him unclean. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah, that's what's going on here. And if you think, well, that's not what's really happening. If you, would you remember we read in verse 40? What happens in verse 40? After all these people believe what her, the woman's testimony, they want to engage Jesus in person, so they invite him. And Jesus spends two days living in Samaritan households, eating Samaritan food with Samaritans to reach Samaritans. Why? Because Jesus was demonstrating even a racial divide is not too much for me to overcome to demonstrate God's love. That's important. That's the beauty of the body of Christ, is the diversity of ethnicity that comes together under the cross and under Jesus' sacrifice for us, that we all come together collectively on, on level ground. We're all sinners, regardless of the language we speak or the color of our skin or the food that we eat. We're all valuable to God. Jesus is demonstrating, this is powerful what he's saying. He's, he's risking his reputation at every level to demonstrate how much God loves people. 
This is a reminder for us today that we are careful that we don't divide along racial lines because we do it. We do it in a culture and we do it in the church. Sadly, someone has said, and it's true, the most segregated hour of the week is Sunday morning. Why? Because we all go to churches where we mostly, people look like us, talk like us, eat like us, live like us, think like us. Why? Because we look at the neighborhood you live in. Most likely the neighborhood you live in looks like you. Because that's what we gravitate towards. It's not true for all of us. The beauty of Southern California, I love it, is the diversity. I love it. But you and I have to come to grips with that there may be issues in our heart that has to be revealed about the fact that God loves me, but also God loves other people who look different than me. So this is not my endorsement for the movie, so if you see it, please don't say that I gave it a thumbs up, although I'm giving you a thumbs up and a caution thumbs up. There's a movie that just came out called Green Book. Excellent film. It's got some rough parts, so if you see it, like, Pastor John saw this movie? Yes, Pastor John saw this movie, okay? But it's a, based on a true story of a relationship between an African-American man and an Italian-American man in the 1960s. So I won't give the whole plot away, but basically the premise is Don Shirley, who is a very gifted classical musician, gets matched up with his driver. His name's Tony Lip. He's from, he's a good old Italian-American. And the, basically the record company hires Tony to drive Don Shirley for six weeks in the South from different places where he's playing music. In the South. So you got a white guy and a black guy in a car driving in the South. That goes over really well. The story is powerful. Because there's an early scene in the movie where, where Tony's at his house with his, his wife and kids and some of his family, and they have a, a plumbing problem. And so they called the plumbers to come in. They just happen to be two African-American guys. And so Tony's watching from the living room what's going on, and he sees his wife give them, both of them give, gives them a glass of water after they're working, and they both drink out of these glasses they put on the counter. Tony walks to the kitchen, he grabs the glasses, and he drops them in the trash. And then he gets matched up with Don Shirley. And now he's in a car and a hotel and all these places for six weeks. Long story short, one of the closing scenes in the movie is Don Shirley shows up at Tony's house because Tony has invited him to be a part of his family for Christmas. It's this amazing transformation. Why? Because for six weeks, Tony got to see what it's like to be an African-American in the South. And he started to realize that although Don Shirley's skin color is different, his taste in food is different, his taste in music might be different. They had so much in common, they realized there wasn't a whole lot of difference between the two of them. And for some of us, you know how you get over your racism? Spend time with people that you don't understand. Spend, spend time with people that confuse you. Spend, spend time with people you don't like because you're going to discover you may like them more than you realize. And then you got to start to see the heart of God for people and the heart of God for you. Whatever the color of your skin, God will cross every racial barrier to demonstrate his love for people. Three things that, that I want to kind of wrap things up with that relate to this passage, but kind of give us an overview of what does God's love look like? So we're talking about, in the context of Christmas, Jesus coming into the world, taking on human flesh, becoming human to unwrap for us who God is. But what does that look like? What does his love truly look like and what Jesus did for us? Three things. The first one, it looks like selflessness. So Jesus was perfect, without flaw. He's the God of the universe, and what does he decide to do? He decides to lay down his capacities as God for himself and become a human being. I want you just to capture what that must have been like. 
to be the God who created all things, and now you've subjected yourself to be one of your creation. To the fullest extent, the only thing that's different between us and Jesus is Jesus never sinned. But Jesus experienced the full gamut of humanity. He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows it, what it is to struggle. Even in the first part of the passage, you remember, it says Jesus wearied from his trip. He felt, he felt tiredness. I'm sure there were days that Jesus woke up and he was grumpy, but he did it without sin. I don't know how you do it, but Jesus did it. He had the capacity to live fully as a human being. Just think about that. The God of the universe selflessly lays down who he is to become human so he could be right next to humans that are broken and sinful and need to be saved. Why? Because he loves people. Paul describes this whole concept this way in Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7. Talking of Jesus, he says, Who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Jesus took on, he like clothed himself with being human. We don't have any good analogies or any good examples of what that's really like. I mean, we can, we can get a glimpse in, of what that's like, but not the fullest capacity of the ultimate God becoming the finite human being that's now contained in human flesh. We just don't have that. Maybe a small picture. Has anybody seen the, the show Undercover Boss? Okay, you guys don't watch TV. A few of you do, that's all right. But Undercover Boss, the whole concept is the CEO spends a week or two as an average employee in their company to see what it's like to work for their company. And I remember watching one in particular that was very interesting. The head, the CEO of Waste Management spent a week as a trash collector. That was fun to watch. A person who worked really hard to work themselves up in the company so they don't have to collect trash actually put on a disguise and spent a week with the truck drivers hauling trash and doing everything that trash collectors do. And it was really eye-opening because they be, he began to see what it's like and what that looks like every single day for this person, not sitting behind a desk, not being clean, but going home smelling like garbage at night, what that's like. It gave him a whole new appreciation for the people who work for him. Now take that on a much grander scale. The God of the universe came down and became a trash collector just like us to live amongst us, to be with us. Why? Because God loves people. And some of you need to hear that today because you're convinced that God is absent and distant and doesn't care. He cares so much that he was willing to give his very life for us, that he was willing to step out of the comfort of heaven to become human just for us so that he could understand fully what it is to be human and not just to be human, but to actually die the most horrific death so that you and I could be saved, so that he would take our sin on him he did that for us, this complete selfless reality for Jesus. Then the second thing, God's love looks like acceptance. And that means that Jesus accepts people right where they're at. Jesus doesn't come to people with conditions and say, if you do this, then I'll accept you. Read through the Gospels. He comes and he receives people right where they're at. He accepts them right where they're at. In fact, listen to what Paul writes in a couple passages. Romans chapter 15, verse 7. He says this, accept one another just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. How does Christ accept us? Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were broken and confused and sinful and impure and all those things together, God was already moving on our behalf. He didn't wait up in heaven and look down and think, okay, when you get your act together, I'll come down and save you. No, he moved on our behalf. He chose to accept us even in the midst of our brokenness. And that means something very important. Jesus said it over and over and over again. Jesus did not come for the healthy. He came for who? The sick. 
That means Jesus specializes in broken people. Aren't you glad because all of us are broken? That's who Jesus shows up with. Jesus didn't spend a lot of time with religious leaders, did he? He spent a lot of time with who? Sinners. That's why he gets the name friend of sinners. Because that's who he spent time with. Because that's who needed him. Because their lives were broken. And that means whatever state you find yourself in today, Jesus will meet you right where you're at because his acceptance leads to something that you can't do on your own. It leads to change and transformation in your life. It's not jump through the hoops and then I'll accept you. No, Jesus accepts you where you're at, but his acceptance will transform you because in his acceptance, you will experience the depth of God's love for you. God takes what is broken and through Jesus' death on the cross, redeems it and makes it what it's supposed to be. You and I lose the image of who God is in us by our sin and our bad choices. Then Jesus comes along and restores that through his death on the cross and the resurrection so that we can be the person that God created us to be without all the layers of sin and brokenness in it. So it means that Jesus looks for and goes after people who are broken. This is something I learned from my grandpa in a very non-spiritual way. One of the things that my grandpa did, he's passed away a number of years ago, but he could fix anything. Anybody have a grandpa like that? I mean, literally, he could fix anything. And because of that, he was a carpenter by trade, but he, he was good with his hands. He could do anything. And so he was always devising ways to take things that are broken and fix them. And so one of the highlights for me as, as, a, as one of his grandkids is every time we stayed at Grandma and Grandpa's house, he, he used to walk all the time for exercise. But when he was walking, it wasn't just walking. It was like a treasure hunt, looking for stuff that people throw away and find and and getting it. And one of the things actually was funny. They, my grandparents lived right next to Van Nuys Airport, which is next to Van Nuys Golf Course. And the way the driving range was configured is that if somebody hit the ball too far, it literally, I think it would cross either Van Owen or Victory. It would bounce across the street and would go into the fence where the airport is. So my grandpa, we would, we would walk along the fence where the airport is, and he had created this extension thing that went like 12 feet and had a little round cup at the end. And you could put it through the fence to the airport, and you could scoop up all the golf balls. So we would go and we would get golf balls and literally all, all of us would come home with like our pockets like filled with golf balls. But one of the other things he always did is he always looked for bicycles that people had either thrown away or discarded or any bike parts that he could find. And then he would just carry them home and take them. And my first couple bikes weren't brand new. They were grandpa's refurbished, remodeled, renewed bikes. And I loved them. I didn't know what a new bike was. I don't even think I ever had a new bike until I was like old enough to buy one for myself because grandpa kept showing up with another bike and he would take, literally, he'd go into his garage with like a chain and a frame and a tire and then I don't know how he did it. I don't know if he was like hocus pocus and suddenly he comes out with two wheels and handlebars and a seat and everything. He would just renew these things and I remember watching that. It was always like, oh, what did grandpa get now? Go check the garage, right? I could see grandma rolling her eyes, right? He brought something else home. But what I loved about it is that he would take whatever was broken and make it like it was new. That's our life. Our life is broken. And no matter how hard we try to keep the parts together, they're broken. And what does Jesus do? He seeks after those that are broken. I remember G my grandpa going into dumpsters and alleys to look for broken bikes. Jesus will go where you are to accept you, to bring you into wholeness in this life, which leads to the final thing. And that is that God's love looks like compassion. Jesus had compassion on people. Compassion is the doorway that God walks through to demonstrate his grace in our life. Because if there is no compassion, there's no hope. But if you read through the Gospels, you'll see on a number of occasions, it actually says this of Jesus. 
In fact, it says it in one time in, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The word compassion isn't that Jesus felt bad for people. The word compassion literally means, literally translated, it's feeling something internally. It's like feeling something in your gut that so compelled Jesus. It was the compassion of God for humanity that sent Jesus into the world. It wasn't enough to feel bad for people, but God was compelled, what, to take action. That's how he felt for this woman. Why did Jesus show up at a well where he knew a woman who had, was impure, who was a Samaritan, who had all these issues? Like, why would Jesus show up? Because his heart broke for that woman. Because he loved her and he knew there was something greater for her life than what she was experiencing. And that's why he showed up. Jesus does that for all of us. Jesus' compassion compels him to do things that we can't do. Here's the difference between compassion and judgment. God is the one ultimately will judge your soul. Humans don't get to do that. God's going to take care of that one. But what does the compassion do? Compassion makes this powerful statement to humanity. There is a way. Where judgment says, there is no way. But compassion always finds a way. Compassion always opens a door. Compassion never closes a door where judgment closes a door and makes it a dead end. Where compassion opens the door for God to do his work. When you think that you've reached the end, when you think that you've reached a dead end, there is no hope. That's when God shows up because he loves you and he's moved by the brokenness in your life to show up and begin to renew you and redeem you and reconcile you back to God. That's the way God works. I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come up and, and join me, and we're going to go into one last song. But I want to share specifically one particular story, I think, that illustrates what God is willing to do for us that I think so many times we, we don't believe and we forget. Hear me. There is no barrier, there is no sin, there is no challenge that is too great for God to overcome in your life. There is no distance that is too great, there is no sin that is too impure there's nothing that you could have ever done in your life that will somehow keep you so far from God that he can't reach you. That's what Paul talks about in Romans as well, that there's nothing that can separate us from what? The love of God. So that means that anything that you go through, God will overcome every barrier to reach you. In fact, the Bible is really clear. In Acts chapter 17, it says this. Paul write, says this to a group of people who didn't know God. He says, God chooses the times and the places where people live for one reason. So they will reach out for him and they will find him because he's not very far from us. That means he's present. He's always close, which means that God is orchestrating your life, pursuing you, coming after you over every barrier that maybe you've placed or the world has placed or your sin is placed in front of him to get to you at the risk of his very life, which was demonstrated on the cross for us. So all the stories that have come out of some tragic, some heroic of all of the fires that our state has experienced over the last month or so, now you're starting to hear some of the, the good news in the midst of the bad news, some of the heroic efforts of first responders and what's happened in people's lives who actually were saved, not lost. And so I was watching a news report this last week and they were interviewing some firefighters who were part of the rescue efforts in the campfire up in Paradise, California. The stories are just incredible. I don't know what it was to experience what they experienced, but I know when they were, were talking about the fire itself in paradise, it is the closest thing that a human being can experience to a true firestorm 
which means fire fell like rain, fire moved like water. In fact, they estimated at its peak because the fire was consuming so much brush and so much territory. At one point, the fire reached the speed of a football field every second. It was consuming that much. You can't outrun that. You can't even come close. It's going to consume you. So people found themselves, if you don't know the, the kind of the geography of paradise, there's really only one main way in and out of that city up the hill from Chico. And so when the evacuation hit, everybody hits the one road heading out, and it becomes this instant traffic jam of people trying to get out. And as this firestorm's coming, vehicles are catching on fire. People are getting out of their cars and running, literally running for their lives. In the middle of this, they, they interviewed these firefighters, and they said that they had brought their engine. They were up there, and, and they knew that there was nothing they could do to fight the fire, but they just had to try to save people. So as they came up on people trying to maneuver out of the fallen trees and the cars that were burning in the road, they kept opening their doors, and they got people in, and they got nine people into the engine. But then they hit a dead end. They couldn't move. The cars were filling the road. They were on fire. People were running, and so they were just going to sit there because there was nothing. They were surrounded by fire. And then they said, we looked at the end of the road. We saw these two huge headlights coming up because if you've seen footage, the smoke was so thick it was like nighttime. And these two huge headlights start coming up the road and they start to realize what it is. It's a bulldozer. And a firefighter had gotten into a bulldozer and he was heading up the main road and he was pushing everything out of his way to get there. So he's pushing burning cars and trees and he's just pushing to the side at the risk of his own life until finally he gets to that engine and then he turns around and he leads a caravan of people back down the road, again, pushing all this debris out of the way so there was a clear path for people to be saved. I think they said there was 15 people in that engine. He saved their lives, risking his own I want you to think about, on a much grander scale, the God of the universe steps into humanity, becomes human, to do what? To push all the barriers out of the way that we put in the way of God, to demonstrate that he loves us. And so I don't know what burning car is in your life, but Jesus is here to take the bulldozer and push it out of the way, to demonstrate that God cares so much about you. He loves you, and nothing can get in the way of his love. So before we sing one last song, I'm going to... In a moment, I'm going to pray, but I want you to hear me. That maybe you're here today and you've known the Lord for a long time, maybe 30, 40, 50 years. But you've forgotten that God loves you. you you've, you've become a professional Christian. There's no passion or emotion anymore because you feel that God's neglected you or somehow your Christianity has come into a routine and I just try to be a good person. And there's no passion because you haven't experienced the love of God. And there's barriers in your life that God wants to remove today to remind you again that nothing is too great for him to overcome, to reach you. Or maybe you're here today and you're, you're interested in who Jesus is and you're trying to get your brain around what, what we're talking about, but you know something inside of you is telling you right now that you need to experience the love of God. But you also are rehearsing in your own mind right now the brokenness in your own life. Maybe you have dealt with sexual impurity in your life. Maybe you have dealt with addiction in your life. Maybe you've done things that you know are wrong or things have been done to you, and you think to yourself, there's no way that I can engage God because God requires perfection, but he doesn't. God wants you to turn your life over to him because he wants to do something that is crazy, something that you and I don't fathom. This is the offer that Jesus makes. This is the invitation that he gives to humanity. He says this, I'm going to come into the world. I'm going to live a perfect life to demonstrate what life's supposed to look like. But I'm going to die a death, not for myself, because I'm perfect. I'm going to die, die for you to take every point of failure in your life and pay for it on the cross. 
And then he says, if you will give me your life, if you'll surrender your life, here's the exchange. Jesus says, you give me your life, your sin, your failure, your brokenness, your hopes, your dreams. I'll take all of that. And in replace, replacement for that, I'll give you my righteousness. I'll make you right with God. I'll make your life what it's supposed to be. But in order for that to happen, what do you have to do? Surrender your life. Choose to follow Jesus and not follow your own instincts and see what God could do to transform your soul. Let's pray together. We're going to sing a song in a moment. It's called Reckless Love, and, and it's going to be kind of the exclamation point of the reminder that there's nothing that God won't do to reach you to demonstrate his love. And so Jesus, as we thank you today for your willingness to become human and you came, the God of the universe chose to be confined into a human body, the body of a baby in the, in the womb of Mary. Lord, we'll never understand what that's like. The, the ultimate act of claustrophobia to be contained all for one purpose, because you loved us. So Lord, I ask today as we, we come to this moment of worshiping you again, I pray for each of us that we, whether we know you and know, have known you for years, but Lord, or maybe we're new to coming to stepping into knowing you, that we, each of us, all of us, not one of us would not experience it, but we would all experience the profound love of God today. That Jesus, we would not leave this place with a question, God, do you love me? But Lord, we would have tangible reality and things that can confirm that, Jesus, there's no barrier you won't go beyond to reach people you love, and you love all of us. So, Jesus, as we worship you, would you remind us through this song that you are a God who loves people, and that there's nothing, nothing that you won't do to show us that love so that we can experience that in a relationship with you, in forgiveness of our sin, in the wholeness of a life that promises life that goes on forever. We thank you, Jesus, in your name.